Hi, my name is Adam Macht. I'm uh, one of the outfitting managers here at Paragus Northwoods Company. I've paddled a lot uh, in canoe country here. Uh, came up here uh, well, several years ago and put on uh, several thousand miles in the wilderness. Uh, seen a lot of both Quetico and the Boundary Waters. I tend to go fast and light, so I'll do some big, big, long trips. Uh, enjoy fishing as well. Uh, I'm about to embark on a long trip down the Mississippi River. We're uh, attempting to break the world record for fastest time down the Mississippi River, uh, which will be an interesting adventure. It'll take mo much of the month of May. And uh, looking forward to a nice 2021 canoeing season. Come on up to Ely, uh, check out Paragus Northwoods uh, Company. We've got uh, a great retail store with gifts, clothing, books, gear. Our bookstore has lots of a uh, great selection of northern authors, Minnesota authors, uh, to check out while you're on the on the water for your canoe trip or uh, just in town enjoying the North Woods. Uh, our outfitting is full service. We can help you with as much or as little as you need, from uh, canoe rentals to the full outfitting to bits and pieces and food, whatever you need for your trip, we're able to, to get you all squared away. Uh, we know the woods, we paddle a lot, so uh, we can help you with routes and permits. Uh, we can find you good spots to go, the fishing holes, uh, the nice campsites. We're here to help you guys get uh, have a successful adventure in, in the wilderness. All right, Dad, and I uh, just want to say thanks for supporting the Boundary Waters, and I hope uh, everybody gets a chance to come on up and experience this wonderful place. The Singing Wilderness by Sigurd Olson. The Singing Wilderness has to do with the calling of the loons. Northern lights and the great silences of a land lying northwest of Lake Superior. It is concerned with the simple joys, the timelessness, and perspective found in a way of life that is close to the past. I have heard the singing in many places, but I seem to hear it the best in the wilderness lake country of the Quetico Superior, where travel is still by pack and canoe over the ancient trails of the Indians and voyagers. I have heard it on misty migration nights when the dark has been alive with the high calling of birds and in rapids when the air has been full of their rushing thunder. I have caught it at dawn when the mists were moving out of the bays and on cold winter nights when the stars seemed close enough to touch. But the music can be heard in the soft guttering of an open fire or in the beat of rain on a tent and sometimes not until long afterward when like an echo out of the past, you know it was there in some quiet place or when you were doing some simple thing in the out of doors. I have discovered that I am not alone in my listening, that almost everyone is listening for something, that the search for places where the singing may be heard goes on everywhere. It seems to be part of the hunger that all of us have for a time when we were closer to lakes and rivers to mountains and meadows and forests than we are today. Because of our almost forgotten past, there is a restlessness within us, an impatience with things as they are, which modern life with its comforts and distractions does not seem to satisfy. We sense intuitively that there must be something more. Search for panaceas, we hope, will give us a sense of reality fill our days and nights with such activity in our minds 
with such busyness that there is little time to think. When the pace stops, we are often lost, and we plunge once more in hoping that if we move fast enough, somehow we may fill the void within us. We may not know exactly what it is we are listening for, but we hunt as instinctively for opportunities and places to listen as sick animals looking for healing herbs. Even the search is rewarding, for somehow in the process we tap the deep wells of experience that gives us a feeling of being a part of an existence where life was simple and satisfactions were real. Uncounted centuries of the primitive have left their mark upon us, and civilization has not changed emotional needs that were hours before the dawn of history. That is the reason for the hunger and the listening and the constant search. Should we actually glimpse the ancient glory or hear the singing wilderness, cities in their confusion become places of quiet. Speed and turmoil are slowed to the pace of the seasons, and tensions are replaced with calm. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters. And it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Oh, and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Welcome to episode 41 of the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I'm here with your host, Sigurd Olson. <laughs> he is here with us, co-hosting this episode in spirit and in place and in mind and even in physical form with the right kind of open mind that we have tapped into during our past few days here listening point and at the Olsen home in Ely where we're recording this now from the edge of the wilderness at listening point. We sit upon the dock built by Sigurd himself. Moments ago we did what what I hope Sigurd did many times before us. We stripped down to our purest essence and we <laughs> ran into the frigid waters of the wilderness on May 1st to cleanse our bodies and our souls of that very existence that Sigurd talked about in that opening chapter. It's an amazing scene as late afternoon has now transitioned into early evening. The sun just maybe starting its descent slowly over the Norway pines and other pines on Listening Point, an iconic place in the Boundary Waters region and in this country and certainly in the process of what the Boundary Waters is. And Joe, when you and I fell in love with the wilderness, I knew little to nothing of 
Sigurd Olson. And I imagine there are plenty of folks who listen, don't know who he is, so can you take a moment to explain the significance of this character in our wilderness story? Yeah, and I want to start that by saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with learning about Sigurd Olson right now in this podcast. If you want to go find some of his his work afterward, that would be great. Um, I first picked up one of his books in 2013 when I was working as a canoe outfitter on the Gunflint Trail, Middle Gunflint Trail area. His works were in the lodge on the shelf, and I picked it up. I knew it was about the Boundary Waters, and it, okay, what is it? Listening point. I think I've maybe even heard of this. I read through it, and quite frankly, Matthew, it didn't leap out at me as something that I was going to be completely inspired. I wasn't in a place where I was ready for that yet. The depth of it. The depth. I wanted to learn about where the walleye bite at 7 p.m. in May. Mm-hmm. I was so energized by that aspect of being up here that I was focused on that. And so Sigurd Olson is an author, a conservationist, outdoor enthusiast who lived in Ely for most of his life, most certainly his adult life. In 1923, bought a place in Ely and then eventually bought this land where we are on Burntside Lake, which is famously referred to and known as Listening Point. It's a piece of property, many acres, where he would come to get away. And he was an advocate for wilderness. And the Boundary Waters is where he's most known because he lived here, but many places. He was an advocate for protection, but also very instrumental in drafting the language around wilderness acts, federal wilderness acts, the Boundary Waters Wilderness Act. He was visited by the Forest Service and the Interior Department would come and get his thoughts, help draw the lines literally to wilderness areas on the big table in his house where we've been working for the past few days. The government then started to fly him up to Alaska. Canadian officials wanted his perspective because he just was so plugged in with what the concept of wilderness is. And now we're starting to think and talk about that too. And last night we talked at length about what is wilderness. It was hard to answer that question. The deeper we dove into it, the less clear it became. But one thing that we know for certain is that everybody experiences what we call the wilderness differently. Everybody's experience of it is utterly unique, and it's always changing. For you, there was a time where it was about fishing. Mm -hmm. And now it's quite a bit more existential than that. Yep. And that really comes back to the podcast, Joe. It accentuates so clearly why sharing yours, ours, everyone's story of the wilderness is important. Because either the wilderness means nothing because it's such a complex, esoteric idea, or it means everything in the culmination of every single story of every person who's ever encountered it. And that's where we're at in our process. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to solve anything necessarily while we're here, or figure it out, or say, you've tuned into the podcast today, we're going to tell you what the wilderness is, and why you should care about it. Because we don't have an answer. Mm -mm. 
But I think what it means has something to do with what we're looking at right now in the physical form, which are spectacular old pines on this point that extends out into Burntside that has protected this bay where we've been swimming. There's something here and there's something beyond where the wilderness line is that has value. And that's what Sig was talking about in that opening chapter. And on today's episode, it's all about the wilderness as a rite of passage and the value of that experience to folks who enter into that and are forever changed. Not only did Sig was the instrumental in Boundary Waters, also Quetico. So we're going to start this episode learning about the way Quetico changed countless lives and the architect of those experiences and how specific people chose to react to the life-changing events of wilderness. Let's start hearing some stories as we move down listening point. I am pleased to welcome to the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast, Myron Kleisner. Welcome to the podcast, Myron. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here for sure. Well, it started a long time ago, many years ago. There was a teacher at what became eventually my junior high school that uh, saw a flyer somewhere and decided he wanted to take a group of kids up to the Quidico and uh, decided that'd be a great experience for them. He was a history teacher. Uh, his name's Chuck Radel. And uh, he, he just had this vision of taking students and letting them experience something that we did not have down in Illinois. And my brother was on that very first trip in 1977. And it was a great trip for him. And so he came home year after year, this was a yearly trip, uh, talking about the Quetico and about everything that uh, he experienced there and pictures on the old 110 cameras and pictures you could hardly see, but it gave me a great vision of what he was, what he was experiencing and seeing. It started out in 1977 with 12 students. I think there was two girls and 10 guys and a you know, college-age girl and another and a junior high girl and a, Mr. Rado, my brother, and some other, uh, other students. Every year, it got a little bit bigger. And by the time I went in 80, I think I started in 86, uh, there were about 120 students caravanning the trip from Central Illinois up to the Quidico. Um, no passports back then, of course. Vans, cars, Suburbans, whenever you could fit people in, there was a big caravan of, uh, you know, 10, 12 cars trekking up through the country. We would uh, do a lot of on the way up and back, a lot of historical things, Old Fort William and camp out on at parks uh, in big 10, 12-man tents, old canvas heavy tents that um, bring back some fond memories. And uh, then as time went along, we ended up in some school gyms. My first trip was the very first trip you came out of eighth grade going into ninth. And it was usually late July, early August is a trip went every year. Uh, my first year was a, a very rainy year. It wasn't the, a, a great, great trip as far as the weather goes. I remember being excited one afternoon that it didn't rain that was just overcast, which is unusual. But uh, that year was a rough year. It was cold, you know, how the rain comes in. And I remember my brother, who so much wanted me to fall in love with the Quidico, was very concerned uh, about, you know, not having that some good weather days and things like that uh, during that time. But I still remember the, the sense of accomplishment that, that I've heard on the podcast for over the years here. 
I was a little scrawny. I, if I weighed a hundred pounds, I'd probably be amazing, pretty um, physically immature at that time. And uh, probably emotionally too, actually. <laughs> but, uh, it, there was a sense of accomplishment of making it through the porridges and carrying these big heavy packs and, you know, cooking your own meals and doing your own dishes and setting up your own tent and everything that goes along with that. You, you walked out of there a sense of accomplishment that felt good. It's uh, something that sometimes we miss in society today is a sense of accomplishment to be able to, to make it through and do well. And even through that first year of rain and a lot of wind and all that, it was still a good trip and one that made me fall in love with the Quetico. The word that comes to, or the term or phrase that comes to my mind, Myron, is almost a sort of rite of passage. Yes, very much so. Rite of passage is very much what it was. I was ready to go back. And, uh, you know, as a, uh, a young, young guy, you know, I didn't always express that well. You know, th- there's those thoughts, you know, you're on a middle of a middle of a portage with a rain and heavy pack on your back. And you think, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And then you get to the end and you feel better about it. And then as you as you were on the trip home and have the, the joy of that and come home and you start talking about the trip and and everything that went on, you remember the good times and the both the good times and the sense of accomplishment that makes you just drive to go back and can't wait. There really seems to be in, in your town of Quincy mm-hmm. a culture of encouragement, support, resources to get folks out into Quetico and to value this experience. How did this come about? How did this unfold? And how is it still continuing? Yeah, I think it was much because of his love for history, which is kind of an odd thing maybe to combine history and the wilderness. The, the whole Quitico and Boundary Waters has such a history to them. See what, what that area has been in the past and understand that. And he just, he, he loved being able to create an experience for students, whether that's actually taking students out and helping them experience uh, life and what was what's there to offer that honestly a lot hundreds and hundreds of students wouldn't have the opportunity or ability to do without him making that happen. Yeah and I get this sense that in addition to the sort of experience of you know natural history and the experience of human history this element that it sounds like was very valued was the connecting with your own abilities and your own confidence. He was a great architect of designing things to, to accomplish a greater purpose. And so to, to have this rite of passage that we, he was seeing, I'm sure he had to see the, the lack of that in, in a lot of junior hires and that were just growing up and, and to, to give them that experience of being able to to understand what they, what, what we as a junior high kid, what we were able to do was well beyond what we thought we could do. I remember one, one boy coming home. I was, had gone a couple of years at this point, And uh, I remember one boy coming home and, and ran to his mama. And he said, I left a boy and now I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that being so, I think back to my junior high self, what an experience to feel. Yes, absolutely. And even as, as a trip was designed for a student going the first time, it's one thing to accomplish that. But then as you kept going back, 
that sense of leadership that was developed uh, very quickly. Every leader within the small pods that we were going out in would give responsibility to each student. It was never the adults taking care of the kids. It was a group effort. It was all of us doing it together. And that was very much by design. And then as you kept going back, you took on more and more responsibility of organizing and, and taking on the, hey, I'm in charge of supper tonight. I get, after you've gone a few years and then you got to get the um, new eighth graders used to cooking and cleaning and, and then navigating through the wilderness. Uh, Mr. Rail had tests that you went through coming out through Batchewan. If you know Batchewan well, but as you come out of the narrows there and come up, it can be very tricky where you go. And uh, that was always our, our navigation test. He made a big deal about making sure that, you know, you passed it. You got recognized for that uh, back at the Outfitters. You know, you got recognized for, hey, you passed your navigation test. We would, we would trust you to navigate us through the Quetico now. And it was a big sense of accomplishment in that, too. You know, I always remember every year going in of this group that you, you may know some others, but you definitely didn't know everybody in your small, in your campsite group. By the time you got out, you knew each other pretty well, weaknesses and strengths and, and how to make things happen and accomplish. And, you know, first few days are always a little rough with, with the junior high group because, you know, everybody's learning, figuring it out. And then as you, uh, as you go along, things start clicking and you see the group form and, and get along better, but function better and encourage each other and be there for one another. You know, everybody has their bad days on a week-long trip. You know, you're just tired and sore or whatever it might be. And to be there for one another and, and pick up the slack or encourage and whatever it took to make the group happen. Do you have any thoughts about how this, those formative experiences have shaped you in ways that you can still see now? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, because uh, just as simple as it is, is um, not always just paying attention to myself, but looking at others. You know, how are they feeling? How are they doing? You know, you, you first start seeing somebody or kind of conversation with them, caring more about what, what they're bringing to the conversation or they're bringing into the, the time together than it is about what I want to express or what information I want to give or teach or whatever it might be, but to pay attention to those around you to, to think of where are they at, you know, they could be uh, having a bad day and bring a lot of that on, onto me, but I need to know why they're that way. You know, why, why are they struggling? Why are they having a have tough time? I would distinctly remember those those ideas starting in the Quetico because you're you're a little more forced to uh, in the Quetico. You're a little more you know have to do it uh, to survive and to make it. Otherwise, you get way behind. It starts getting dark before you get to your campsite and those kind of things. So there's a a little more urgency there and necessity and and you're you're a little more in tune to the adults around you early on. And so when they example that, you learn that, and then you become that example as time goes along. That's this thing, Myron, about this that strikes me as so powerful is you did this at what was able to happen is the natural formation of that within your own community. Though the program itself is no longer running, there are so many people, yourself included, who continue to have an ongoing relationship and experience in Quetico. Uh, and that is one way that it continues on. So where did, where did that bring you now at this point in your life with Canoe Country? 
Yeah, I had taken quite a few years off, got married, got involved in life, as many of us do, and and just had fond memories of the Quidditch. But it was difficult to to get back into it. I think our first trip, as my brother and I and and friends, started going in 2010. We've gone five times uh, since 2010. Would have been six if it wasn't for the uh, this past year of the famous 2020. Great experiences uh, every year. Um, I've uh, been able to take my sons. Uh, one of my boys went three times. One of my boys went twice. Just a great father-son experience, and their uncle, of course. And it's been a been a great thing. And we're not the only ones. There's many people who have gone up there. I remember coming into Quetico once on the Rome, and uh, we come up to these other canoeists, and well, it's my best friend's brothers uh, from from Quincy that were coming out of the Quetico as we were going in. Got to say hi to them, and uh, you're out in the middle of Quetico, thousand miles from home, and hey, I know you, <laughs> and uh, it's a it's a neat thing, and to know somebody and know somebody very well, even. And all goes back to Quincy Junior High. It does. It does. Absolutely. Do you notice, Myron, ways that now that you're introducing Quetico to your sons, that's still important to you to, to keep those principles active, that design that goes back to Mr. Radel alive? Oh, absolutely. I worked with young people for 25 plus years to help them understand how to take care of uh, creation and how to take care of the nature around you, uh, the leave no trace. And remember the, one of the sayings that's that's famous, of uh, take only pictures and leave only footprints. Just how to take care of things and how to quiet yourself. You just don't take from this world that you give back to this world, uh, whether that's with people or whether that's with uh, creation, uh, whatever that might be. Help the world out, you know, it's take care of what's going on around us. Myron, I, I think that's a wonderful message to wrap our interview up with. I want to thank you so much. You know, we've, Myron reached out to the podcast via email, like so many others, and just you had a story you wanted to share with us. No intention of being roped into an interview, just out of just your love for this place. And thanks for making this happen. I really appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate you and Joe so much and what you do and, and just keeping the uh, the boundary waters and the Quetico for us and how much it teaches us and how it helps us in life, not just having a great place to unplug, but the value that it brings back to our, our lives and how it informs us and who we are. Hello there. My name is Rachel Shower from True Earth Yoga. In his 1977 work, The Singing Wilderness, Sigurd Olsen describes the meditative experience one can have while paddling. He writes, The movement of a canoe is like a reed in the wind. Silence is part of it, and the sounds of lapping water, bird song, and wind in the trees. At True Earth Yoga, we guide others to make the most of their everyday lives and discover their true nature within. By removing distractions, and training ourselves to be genuinely present with the wilderness, we learn to be genuinely present with ourselves. True Earth Yoga is based in the Superior National Forest and available everywhere online. Allow us to introduce you to your true nature through meaningful yoga and mindset coaching. Get started today by visiting trueearthyoga.com. Be well and be you.
When I entered that cabin, I was close to the wild. Here life was primitive, and I felt as Thoreau did when he said, drive life into a corner and reduce it to its simplest terms. Here, if anywhere, was the simplicity he meant. This was no place for fancy or unnecessary equipment. The cabin meant moccasins, rough wool, and leather, and simple thoughts. Complicated problems of society, politics, war, and peace seemed far removed. The only thoughts that thrived here were of squirrels and birds and snowshoe trails. Here I felt as much a part of the out-of-doors as when sleeping under a ledge. The words of Sigurd Olsen being read in the cabin that Sigurd himself built on Listening Point. I feel it. We're inside the cabin that, as you said, Matthew's here on Listening Point. We've moved from the dock to the cabin now, inside the cabin. The birds are starting their evening calls and songs. It's exactly as it was left, for the most part, and it's really wonderful. This is our third night in a row now being here. Tonight feels a little different in, a, in an exciting way that I can't quite put my finger on yet. There's a power in it. Sigurd's desire was that everything be left as it is at this place, and it truly is. You know, his shave kit sits on a little wooden shelf under a mirror. His kettle sits on the little stove. His paddles for his canoe still sit in the corner. Fishing tackle box up on the shelf. Moose sheds, rocks. The windows are the same. The chairs. The table where we're sitting right now. One of the things challenging about Wilderness Joe is that part of its beauty is that it comes out of the deepest desire to preserve a place that is, you could say, unpolluted by our human economics and our human destruction that we do in our processes of creation. The reality is that as untouched as this is, and as virtually untouched as the wilderness is, the passage of time continues on. The world is always changing, and we are always changing. And, and you know, we hear these stories, you know, Myron's stories, and these other men whose lives were changed when boys in the wilderness and one thing that has most certainly changed is that there was a time where it was just about always men in the wilderness. Most common was to have groups of white men doing trips into the wilderness. Indeed, yes. Like for our European settler heritage. And that's changing. The folks who want and desire access to wilderness is as varied and diverse as the human race. And we're gonna hear from a young person 
young woman about her transformative experiences in the wilderness, her own rite of passage, and the way that the wilderness is continuing to shape and be shaped by those that have come and followed in the footsteps of Sig Olson. Let's move right into that from here at Listening Point. We are sitting on the granite stone that is emerging from the waters of Lake Superior as we stare back at the ridges and bluffs of Cook County. Just beyond those hills are the boundary waters. And I'm talking with Hazel Overholzer. Hi. <laughs> Hazel, welcome to this little rock that is our Boundary Waters podcast today. Okay, um, I'm Hazel Oberholzer. I go to high school here at Cook County High School. Yeah, and I have spent a lot of time in the Boundary Waters in my life. Um, I grew up going to Camp YMCA Camp Minogian up the Gunhunt Trail. It's my soul place, my happy place. Mm, the Boundary Waters. Yes. I started going on trips with my dad and my cousins that were always super fun with my big cousin Lyndon and my little brother Cy. So it always just be like super fun. We'd play imaginary games and just get super into these like entranced in these like worlds that we had created. I feel kind of bad for my dad. <laughs> like three of us, like probably like four, six and eight just oh. under his watch. <laughs> but he's a trooper and he loves it just as much as we do. So um, those were always awesome. And then as time went on, we kind of just do a family trip every summer. And then when I was a sixth grader, I went to Widgewagon in Ely for a trip. And it was really fun, but it was also kind of like a little bit dulled down from what I had experienced. And I was like, hey man, I do a lot more than this with my family. I kind of need to step up from this. So I, the next year, looked into YMCA Kaminojin, which is a little closer to home. Um, and really fell in love with going to Minogen. It was really awesome there. And I did Boundary Waters trips up until freshman year. They were it's like some of my most formative experiences in the, in the Boundary Waters for sure. During that time? Yeah, during the, like those middle trips. middle school? Yeah. I feel like going through such a pivotal moment in my life, just being a like eighth grader or like a seventh grader through freshman, like you're going through a lot and doing a lot of self-reflecting and changing. I don't even say reflecting yet. <laughs> but maybe even just becoming aware of self. Yes, yes. Just gaining self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That having a week up to two weeks in the Boundary Waters with older girls, my counselors, mm -hmm. who were like so cool and empowered and knew so much was so influential for me. Mm. I was like, 
these are the kind of women I want to be. That is so cool. They are so strong. And they are out here alone with a bunch of little girls just killing it. That was always, like, super impressive to me. The topics that would come up, you know, on those trips, just, like, when you're out in this, like, very raw environment with just young girls who are all kind of experiencing the same things, and then just the vulnerability that is available when you're, there are no boys around, no parents, no school, no teachers. It's just, like, you and then this special wilderness area. So much comes out. I cried so many times on those trips. Maybe like the power of being homesick and kind of working through that with these people and like gaining a comfort level with these people or just being like 13 year old girls and knowing that like I'm going through something right now that adult adults go through and have to struggle through like portaging canoes and paddling through rainstorms or whatever it may be. You know, just like the very empowered sense of like, hey, I'm young and I'm doing this and it feels awesome. The things you saw your dad doing yes. and the things that now these women are doing. And I almost wonder if there's like a mourning the loss of like, kind of mourning the loss of your child self as you sort of embrace this like pain feeling human that yeah. you're becoming. Right, because Boundary Waters trips were like vacations when I was little, you know, because my dad would cook and set up the tent. And like, I don't think I ever portaged much more than like a paddle, you know? <laughs> um, so it just like wasn't ever work. And it was all about just this beautiful, joyful environment. And then as I got older, like these trips had more grit aligned with them. And I think I like love that part of it. The grit. Yes. And just the mental and physical toughness that you is necessary of camping in general and Boundary Waters camping specifically. What kind of things were you doing on those trips? Like what sticks out in your mind that brought that grit for you? When you get with those counselors, they make it pretty clear, we are not your parents. We're not doing things for you. We're here to be with you and guide you and like keep you safe. But also you have to set up the tent you'll be cooking meals sometimes. I had a lot of confidence paddling a canoe and setting up a tent just because of my dad and because of my upbringing. But um, for some of the girls that I was with, like that was completely new. And just the gained confidence of, oh yeah, yesterday I was really bad at this and now I can feel myself improving mm. and how cool that is. Yeah, like you can really measure your own progress yes. day to day. Totally, mm -hmm. like yesterday I couldn't flip the canoe up onto my shoulders and today I feel confident walking 20 rods with it, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so there's this like phys this physicality to the grit, portaging, even cooking. I imagine the weather wasn't always perfect. Yeah. But you also, uh, you kind of mentioned this emotional grit of being in this community of females, female-bodied humans, that also sounds pretty powerful. There's some grit, was there grit to that part as well? Absolutely. I was pretty homesick when I was young and that was a big factor for me on those trips for the first few days. I would be like pretty like almost crippled by homesickness, you know, mm. it was consuming my every day and move, you know, my move every day. That, um, that ache, that belly Yes, ache. just like mm. the, oh my God, I want to go home mm. so bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and then also just the dynamic of being with a bunch of young girls too is, you know, as there is with all humans, but I think especially developing young girls, a lot of just like, that was annoying. And how do I deal with that? Mm. Interacting with each other and creating bonds and making sure that we're like dealing with those conflicts in a healthy way, you know, but also like remaining friends and knowing that we're on, like we're in this for the long haul. We can't just dip out and get out of the trip if yeah. things aren't going perfectly. Yeah. That's pretty real. I mean, not only can you not dip out, but you're pretty remote. Yeah. I still get glimpses of that feeling when I go deep into the wilderness. And I don't know if it ever hits you still, but it's this like, whoa, come far away. Yeah. Like maybe even not mileage wise, but I know that I'm days in now. Yeah. So to get out of here will take days and there's a certain feeling around that. That's sort of vulnerable. Super. I think my biggest example of that in my life, my final trip with Minogen was a backpacking trip on Isle Royale, oh. which is so cool, but incredibly isolated. You feel so crazy isolated when you're just in the middle of the big lake on this island where you're just like hiking and that's all anyone is doing out there. There's like no cars. I got sick that trip. So I was just experiencing that deep, oh my goodness, if I needed to leave, how would I leave? Yeah. And that brings about a lot of emotions that I don't, I never had to deal with on my daily. Mm -hmm. How'd you get through that? I mean, eventually one day things just kind of switched and I got better from being sick and I could see the end of the trip in sight. And I, that sounds kind of like sad, like I was just looking forward to to it being done but it felt more manageable when I could like okay we have five more days that's okay I can do that and then I started to just like really really be appreciative of my surroundings and it's really cool out there mm -hmm. it's really really cool so I think eventually I just my mindset became I'm gonna get off and that's gonna be good but right now I'm doing this so be mm. present yeah now you're a senior in high school. So what happened between then and now? I mean, kind of going along with the rite of passage thing, I eventually grew out of Minogen. I was just feeling like, I don't need the camp environment. I don't need the guides. You know, as much as that was so incredibly formative and important to me when I was young, I just, after that Isle Royal trip this summer before my sophomore year, it's like, and this will be my last because I know what I'm doing. I feel really confident in myself and like my trips are going to start going down the path of solo trips or trips with my friends or, you know, just trips with my family still, but I can take more of a leadership role in those. As I got bigger and stronger, my dad would rely on me a lot more to just like be an actual functioning member of the group, <laughs> you know, to like pull my weight and always take a canoe and stern a canoe always. Cause I mean, in my family of five, an experience of wilderness it goes me and my dad so i was always like the second man on those trips mm. so a lot of responsibility with just turning boats and having to portage one of the heavier packs i liked it. it it feels fun to do stuff out there my first trip without my parents person only actually was last summer with my best friend ellen yes she's so wonderful um we went out into the boundary waters like 
at the very beginning of June. We planned it in like two days. We were like, we're going to do this and we're going to do it right now. And we don't have work and we can do it. And it was super fun feeling of we're young and we're doing this and we're out here. Those same feelings that I had when I started Monogen, but now it was like, and I'm fully alone and I'm totally independent along with my girlfriend, you know, my friend and just like how cool that was. What, what do you remember about that trip? Like some, can you share some specific memories? Um, a specific memory. We love the song, The Wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald. <laughs> Cook County classic, you know, mm -hmm. well-loved. And we sang that song, like, we both had it downloaded on our phones. And we brought our phones to take pictures. So we would like listen to it and then just try to memorize all the words. And it is a long song. <laughs> so we would like paddle and just sing it. And like mm. one of our days was like super windy, huge waves. And we were singing the wreck. And it just felt very like appropriate for the waves and the way the, <laughs> the, way the lake felt. <laughs> um, so we did a lot of singing, relaxed time, just delving deep into topics. And now Ellen and I are very close but we talked about stuff we had never talked about that trip, like totally new subjects. And just for hours, one time we just were in the hammock for like three hours, just, just talking and talking and talking. And a, lo a lot of that talking was reflecting on the availability of, we have nothing to do right now. And we can just sit here and talk for three hours. We don't have to go to school or work or whatever it may be, or tend to boyfriends mm -hmm. it was just like oh my gosh the feeling of there's nothing we have to do but feed ourselves and how nice that is yes it, it sounds free yeah but there was a sense of you got yourselves out there and you could do whatever you wanted with that time yes mm -hmm. yes and like exactly we got ourselves out there it's not the, the doing of anyone else we planned this trip and to just really take charge and have to do it all on my own with the help of my friend was just like very poignant, very, like a very important moment for me. I cannot tell you how good it felt to like remember how to tie the canoe on. <laughs> yes. Which you had to do twice. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh, were you ever, were you ever scared on that trip? Never real fear. And I'll share this because I think it's kind of funny to reflect on, but we talked a lot about like being young women alone mm -hmm. in a wilderness area where you see a lot of men. I don't think that we were ever like genuinely scared because we never had any run-ins that felt scary, but there definitely was a lot of thought surrounding like we are isolated. We're at this campsite alone. Does that make us vulnerable? So yes, mm -hmm. I would say, but Never to the point where it was like, and I'm never going back, you know, right? at all. Yeah. And, you know, I really, I'm really grateful that you shared that. Because um, I think that's something that dads uh, can forget about when talking to their daughters about being out. Um, and that mo most, you know, straight cisgendered men would never enter their minds exactly and yet you know it is a reality that you feel vulnerable because those things happen in this world yeah there are things that make you unsafe and you still fit it yes 
and we still loved it. And would you do it again? Absolutely. We're in the works of planning our next one. <laughs> yes. yes. So. Where did you go on that trip? Would you uh, mind sharing your route? Yeah, we just went in at Sawbill to Alton, stayed at one campsite on Alton, but then we paddled down to Beth one day, portage into Beth, and went cliff jumping there. There's like amazing cliffs at the portage there. Mm -hmm. um, and Beth is a beautiful lake. And Ellen had never been there, so that was fun because that's a trip that, or like a little route that we've done a lot as my family. Mm -hmm. um, so I picked it because it was comfortable, you know? Totally. Um, it was manageable because we planned this trip in two days. <laughs> oh, it was very last minute. Yeah, huh? very last minute. Um, but yeah, it was really beautiful and we had great weather. Yeah, and that's a beautiful area. Yes, yeah. Oh, it's like halfway, halfway down the Lady Chain? Yeah, Beth about? is like the first Lady Chain lake. Okay. Yeah, if you're going through from Alton. Yeah, towards Kuishui. Yes. Yes. There's a Hazel Lake. Never That's been. right. I know. Oh, Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go. There's a Hazel and a Grace Lake. And one of my cousins who consistently comes on our trips is Grace. So I don't know why we've never done that. <laughs> oh, I think you're going to have to. I think so. Maybe we'll do a trip together. Just me and Grace. Oh, that would be really special. It would be really special. I can see it in my future for sure. She's wonderful and very capable. Oh, one thing I know about you, Hazel, uh, is that not only are you passionate about the wilderness and you're a passionate human um, that extends to um, some of the other ways that you've interacted in regards to the wilderness um, in your in the last few years can you tell us a little bit about that um yes uh summer of 2018 or 19 so the summer before i was a junior I traveled to Washington, D.C., our capital, to lobby and advocate for or against the mining that might is being proposed on the edge of the Boundary Waters. I went with the organization Kids for the Boundary Waters, which is a super cool program run by this guy named Joseph. He started it up out of just a passion and love for the Boundary Waters, and that was a really cool trip. Um, one of the first things that I that it taught me was the how the Boundary Waters isn't really just a Minnesota thing or not a, just a Minnesota issue because there were kids from everywhere, like Arizona, Seattle, like kids just from all over the country, all in Washington, D.C. to advocate for this like relatively small, obscure wilderness area and how cool that mm. is. Like all these kids just decided to like uproot and come because mm -hmm. it's important. Yes. There were 70, like 70 of us. Um, and we went to like over 60 different meetings with representatives and their staffers. Um, and it was super empowering because we did all the talking during all those meetings, um, did a lot of research. We were prepped a lot about the issue and what we needed to say and what we needed to do. And then also just like give our own stories and our own emotional appeals, you know, because mm. when you're dealing with government, like how else are you going to do it? You need to make them feel for you. Mm -hmm. Um, on the very last day, we <laughs> I like that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the very last day we were taking a picture with Amy Klobuchar and we were also like down and bummed that she wouldn't hear us on the issue. Like Amy mm. Klobuchar kind of just 
this was like a meet and greet for her. And we were like really wanting to talk to her about this because she's our Minnesota gal. And um, we were super discouraged. And after the picture, like a staffer came up to me and um, three other girls and was like, um, like, how was that? Did you guys have fun? We were like, yeah, but we like really wanted to talk to her. And she was like, well, I can see what I can do. So me and these three other girls went up into this like meeting room and talked to her like head staffer, like her first, first man, first mate, you know, mm-hmm. and like real, and it was just this imp- totally impromptu meeting. We had not been prepped. We, you know, the only adults with us were Amy and Dave Freeman who oh. were along with that on that trip. Um, and they just like came with us to kind of like chaperone in a sense, but they just sat in the corner and we had a map and we just like did it. Mm. And it was such an incredible moment. Like wow. feeling like I'm so educated that I can be telling this person in government the issue on my own without being prepped mm-hmm. and making a difference. Yeah. And I remember uh, Dave is one of my dad's good friends from forever, you know, and he texted my dad a picture of us at the table and was like, look at your daughter go. Like, <laughs> look at this moment. Look at how cool this is. Mm. And my dad, you know, everybody was just like super impressed by that. And it really was a cool moment. This whole trip that felt very organized. It was really cool, but it felt very organized. Um, and then this moment that was just like so crazy and out of the blue and impromptu. And it went so well. Wow. Yeah. That sounds incredible. Yeah. It sounds kind of life changing. Yeah, we were really riding that high for a while. Mm-hmm. We were like, that was so cool. Yes. You know, Hazel, I, you know, hearing your story, I, I've had these little really powerful mental pictures of you as a little kid. And then, you know, fast forward to you as, you know, a, a young teen, homesick, trying to find your way with other girls. And then your solo trip. And then this powerful moment of advocating, you know, like going from being almost too homesick to be in the Boundary Waters without your family to being in Washington, D.C. without your family. Yes. Really stepping into who you are and how connected that is to to the Boundary Waters. Yes. And how, like, I got there because of my time in the Boundary Waters and because of the confidence that I slowly gained just, you know, knowing I can do it and then just knowing I could go to DC and talk to a bunch of staffers about this issue I care so much about. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what one thing Hazel is you you have this unique perspective. Um I think you know, every generation um gets a gift and that's a fresh look. And you have a fresh look on the wilderness, on, you know, sort of our social values in regards to that, the trends, blah, blah, blah. That's going to be different than mine, different from your dad's, different from a lot of our listeners. Um, what? How do you view the wilderness and how it needs to continue to adapt or the way we hold it needs to adapt in order to maintain its significance to 
young people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, I think accessibility comes to mind right away. Just, it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of privilege surrounding trips, vacations in general, and then obviously trips into wilderness areas and the boundary waters especially, you know, being able to take time off of work, having, you know, the privilege to do that and the availability to buy the gear you need or rent the gear you need. And, you know, people would say like time is money. So just the, the time to go spend that, that energy and whatever with your kids and family, um, needs to change. Cause right now it's just like the people who can afford it. Mm-hmm. And also it surprises me how many kids and people in our community who have never been to the boundary waters. And I think there's a lot of stigma around wilderness and that it's a, you have to be a certain type of person to go into the wilderness Mm -hmm. that you have to look a certain way or have the certain gear. Like our puffy jackets that we're both wearing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We fit the exact model Mm -hmm. that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Which is just like, really flawed i think that our nation in general has a problem with that of like you need to look a certain way to do certain things Mm -hmm. and just how ridiculous that is yeah yeah um hazel i appreciate that one thing that sort of is coming up in my mind is you know they're coming back to that access issue you know so many of of us this is in your story and in many other stories that we've told where a family member, previous generation, maybe even multiple generations, like those traditions of going into wilderness become like passed down. And it just, you know, helps me understand that, you know, if, if there's nobody in your family or in your culture or in your community that has access to that, then then you never get, then if you so chose, like you don't have the, the choice to start passing that on because you don't have a choice to access it. So that, that those sort of access issues can become multi-generational in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. That's a really good point. Just if you don't see people that you know or care about doing these things, but you're interested in it, how do you, how do, you do it? How do you access it? Mm-hmm. How do you start? I mean, I think about that with different topics that I'm, have no idea about like how would I ever start doing that yes and I think from the outside wilderness travel probably looks pretty I don't know like trying to find the right word stupid (laughs) no Hazel I I talk about this all the time with rock climbing yeah you know like how stupid does it look that you're just gonna climb up this cliff and then come back down for no reason right exactly you're like you're just gonna canoe out to this lake to this other portage I don't know Mm -hmm. right and like how do you understand the value if you never get to experience it because yeah we can make these podcasts where we talk about the importance but like that doesn't tell it Mm mm-mm yeah, I mean, I don't think I doubt there are many people listening to us and being like, "I've never done that," and that sounds awesome. Yeah, you know, most exactly. people listening to be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember my first time." Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so I think there is, you know, a, an opportunity for us to work collaboratively. I think even across generations, 
and uh, across communities to sort of those those of us who have that access to decide how we want to creatively open that up not as not as a telling somebody this is what you need to do but as an offering of opportunity yeah to folks that maybe would like you said like that person who wants to do it but they've never seen anybody close to them do it yeah which is really cool yeah and it's not as hard and scary as you think like it doesn't have to be a week-long trip mm-hmm. it could be a night mm-hmm. and you're still getting that experience and you're still like learning for next time mm-hmm. and you have to start somewhere yes wow i'm just so excited to finally get you on here um Thanks for making the time, sharing your big heart for the wilderness. Um, Yeah. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my insight. And then one time, when I was far away, I heard the news. A road had come to Saginaga. I stared in disbelief at the newspaper clipping. A road to Saginaga? It did not seem possible. The article told briefly of some new mining discovery and how a new highway would open up a vast and untouched wilderness north of Lake Superior. The very matter-of-factness of the item struck me like a blow. Saginaga had come to mean far more than just another lake. It had woven itself into my consciousness become part and parcel of all I had ever wanted, something real and true and tangible, a place secure and permanent in a world where values were always shifting and men no longer seemed to be sure of anything. I tore the little clipping into bits and crumpled them in the palm of my hand. For a long time I tried to forget, but the knowledge haunted me and I knew that someday, somehow, I must return and see for myself. I must go back to the wilderness I had known. Sigurd Olson from the Singing Wilderness. And we've moved our way out toward the end of Listening Point. The sun is hidden behind some clouds with the rays beaming down on the far side of Burntside Lake as we look to the west toward Pine Island. And hearing the words of Sig and his favorite lake, Mighty Sag, and how it changed as we've listened to reflections about wilderness, what it means, rite of passage to this beautiful Quetico Superior Boundary Waters area. We come to understand as we've moved further out to Listening Point and a motorboat went by as we stepped toward the end of the point, completely within its rights to be here and for portions of SAG. There's a motorized access corridor and there are homes, cabins, that SIG at one point could not fathom. As you heard, he he was shocked, angry by the basic delivery of the news that SAG had a road. And without 
the designation of the wilderness federal declaration to protect the boundary waters and other wilderness areas, many of the lakes would have boats going by the campsites, motorboats, cabins, roads, and so... Development, logging, infrastructure. It's the effort and the work of people like Sigurd Olson and those who came before him and those who are coming after him in the present and those who will be there in the future to protect the boundary waters and other wild places and why it's important as we said in the beginning of this episode is different to pretty much every person and it can change from day to day. Joe, if you could put it simply, today, what does the wilderness mean to you? It's a place to provide hope that there are simpler ways to exist on this planet that aren't rooted in financial gain or having to do with long-term planning, retirements, profit. It's a place where the core instincts of human nature can still serve a great purpose. And that's what gives me hope, is the knowledge that it's out there. as you point towards beyond the wilderness line. Just over those islands. What does it mean to you, Matthew? Hmm. It helps me look at the world that is that I was born into as critically. And it helps me to look at how exploitative and fundamentally oppressive that world is and I'm and I've got it pretty good compared to many others mm -hmm. and being in my the the person that I am being the human that I am being when I am in the wilderness feels truer than any of that and the practice of complete presence of not having to think beyond this moment too far feels like it's tapping into a memory that is deep within my cellular makeup, my DNA mm -hmm. and so it gives me hope in who I am and it gives me a sense of empowerment to change the world outside of the wilderness to be more like that. Yeah. And it's beautiful that there's freedom to change those feelings. Mm -hmm. It can change when you cross the line that Sig Olson and others drew. 
this will be the place where the, the progress of what many people consider development and growth and industry, it will not cross this line. That it, it could be a different answer crossing that imaginary line and that is very powerful to realize. that when we're in there, just on the other side of these islands, we'd probably have a different feeling about it. We're very fortunate to be out here at Listening Point on this beautiful evening, first of May. Happy May Day, by the way. Same to you. We've been provided this amazing opportunity by the Listening Point Foundation to be here uh, to share this experience with you and hear these stories about the rite of passage and what it means for us to think about Sig Olson, Sigurd Olson writing his stories to share this place and us coming to more fully understand that that is why we created the Boundary Waters podcast was to share stories and that that is an important part of keeping the boundary waters an asset for future generations. Including Quetico. The Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, Quetico. Isle Royal. Woodland Caribou, Bob Marshall Wilderness, Olympic National Park. Yellowstone. It's all part of setting things aside to be visited, to be enjoyed, but not to be abused through growth with no limits. Somebody was wise enough to know that human beings need boundaries, and that's a boundary that we cannot cross in that way. That is a good thing for humans. We're going to kick back and watch the sun set over the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness from Listening Point tonight. This has been a very amazing time. Simply. So stay